Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Joining me? My co-host, live from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, it's Steve Ovens. <laughs> How's it going, Noah? You know, my the the guy that I do my or the guy that I do the handoff with at Layton does actual voice work, and it drives him nuts when I do stuff like that. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> you don't do it professionally enough. No, apparently not. <laughs> All right, uh, so I want to dig into the feedback, Steve. Last week, you reached out to people and said, hey, I have a problem with curl. So I wanted to get an update from you. How's your curl situation? So we got a bunch of feedback in. Uh, there's, there's three or four different people that, that uh, wrote back in and basically said, I don't know what your problem is. Uh, it works for me. <laughs> um, so I Very will go Linux back in. Yeah. No, I mean, there, there was um, extended extended proof or, or examples that were provided. Um, I will go through those and I want to say thank you for actually taking the time to reply. There, there's a bunch of people, so I'm not going to call them all up by name. Um, I, I mean, I, I glanced through several of the, uh, the suggestions and they looked like what I was doing already. And so, but I had one person say, well, maybe there's a problem with, with the shell and it's a problem inside of the script itself. So, um, I'm not really sure. I will see about tracking that down because the one of the explanations was that the shell interprets the variables before the curl command runs, so it, it shouldn't be the curl command itself. And so, um, I guess there's some some thought that I have to put into this. Um, I'm not much closer, but I'm definitely going to give it a shot for the people that actually gave me some solid suggestions. I'm going to do my level best not to derail the show before we even get started with the show. But l- let me ask you this. Where does one go to find an authoritative resource on how something like the curl command works? Like, how would you know if a variable is processed by curl or if it's being processed by the shell? Like, where is that information available and how would somebody find it? So I, I imagine it comes down to the order of execution and you have to understand how the shell works. And it's been literal years since I've had to think on that level and it, it rings true to me, mm. like it. It rings true to me that that the shell itself is the one that's handling the variables, regardless of whether it's the Z shell or just SH or Bash or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that rings true to me since you know I'm declaring a shell variable, right? Um, but to be honest, I don't know. I imagine you'd have to read up on how shells worked. Um, in order to actually get that answer. And where would you find information on how shells work? I mean, is that just a, is that a Google thing or is, is there like a bash mailing list or something? Well, 
I don't think anybody's writing to the bash mailing list anymore. <laughs> I imagine you're talking about if if you're a masochist and you're on the command line, you're probably reading the man pages or if you're a gentleman, you read the man pages in your browser. <laughs> <laughs> I had a my first Red Hat instructor. He was this like old crotchety guy, and like uh, second Red Hat instructor. My first first one was really really good, but and the second one was good too. But his answer to everything was just drop a man page, and it took me a solid like three or four times of him saying that to even understand that he was using the words grep a man page and then I didn't know what grep was at the time I didn't really know what man pages were and I certainly didn't know how to grep a man page but that was his answer to everything and then once I figured it out and I started doing it I, I learned a little bit more but all that to say thank you so much to, to those of you who write in we so appreciate that and that is what makes the show great is that there is the collective knowledge of the people that are out there in the community so I guess give that a shot and then also Teach me what you learn about the shell and variables. I would like to learn. Yeah, we'll see how far I get with it. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to park it for now. I've got I've got Ohio Linux Fest coming up, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that later in the show. We will. Um, so we'll start with Jeremy. Jeremy writes in and responds to episode 312 regarding the crypto discussion. I have another take that crypto hasn't really produced a usable product or service for the general public. I can't go into any store and just pay with crypto directly. Sure, there is a pass through credit cards and that works from your crypto, but for the most part, I can't really use it for anything tangible. The idea to support crypto networks via miners was a very clever idea. However, mining crypto has produced probably a literal mountain of waste and raised the prices of consumer goods such as GPUs so with no real clear benefit to anyone. I don't want to pay three times MSRP for the cost of a GPU when it comes time to buy one. To be clear, I'm not opposed to using natural resources to produce things that we can all enjoy or benefit from. Best, Jeremy. Man, that is some really on-point feedback, let me tell you, Jeremy. I mean, you're right, you know, especially when it comes to things like ASICs. You're talking about building a piece of technology that's useful for a very short amount of time, can do one task and one task only, and then it's e-waste, and then we throw it out. And that was never, ever what crypto was supposed to be about. When, when, when the white paper for Bitcoin came out, the idea was to decentralize and allow people to do this stuff. It was never supposed to be, oh, that's great. Yeah, we centralize in huge mining farms that people there's a there is a there is a, a group in North Dakota that is buying one of like the old missile silos and they're turning it into a high security data center where they're going to mine cryptocurrencies. I mean, I suppose it's natural that stuff like that would happen. It was just never designed that way. To your point about it not being really practical, early on, I was super excited when I had the chance to go to San Francisco and I purchased a donut or like a, a cupcake, actually it was, from a cupcake shop and I was able to use cryptocurrency. Now, this is back in like 2015, 2016. So I'm sure I took, I'm sure it cost me the equivalent of a second house mortgage um, in today's money in what I spent on the cupcake. But the novelty of being able to walk into a store, take something that I mined on my computer and get and exchange it for a tangible cupcake was a really eye-opening experience. And back then, you know, NFC wasn't a thing. Tapping to pay wasn't a thing. Google Pay and Apple Pay wasn't a thing. So this was really the closest we'd ever had to the ability of going completely digital to completely digital, where I just take a piece of my technology, share a piece of information, and you get money in return. So it's kind of a new concept. Now, 
a lot of those convenience things, they found different ways to do them. But I would say, to bring this discussion kind of full circle, the reason FTX got into the trouble that they got into in the first place is precisely because people weren't treating cryptocurrency like a decentralized currency. Instead, they all flocked to one central exchange, gave all of their private keys to said exchange, said, here, please hold on to my cryptocurrency and don't do anything bad with it, please. Thank you. And then it turned out that they didn't have a whole lot of integrity and the whole ship came crashing down. Had we stuck to the original tenets of cryptocurrency to begin with, what it was originally designed to do, how it was originally designed to work, and where each user had a wallet and you signed your transactions, FTX would have never happened. The fall would have never happened. It would have never gotten to that point. Um, so I, I think what I would say is we're just not there yet. I don't, I'm not giving up on cryptocurrency for a long shot. I would be lying if I told you I thought, well, Bitcoin's going to be the one or Ethereum's going to be the one. I have no idea. But I genuinely like the idea of cryptocurrency, and I genuinely think it solves problems that don't exist. Because, or excuse me, it solves problems that we don't have solutions to today. Elegant solutions to, you know, just pay, buying something on eBay from across the world and the ability to get money into somebody's hands is huge. Steve, have you ever played with crypto, or have you had any ever had any interest in such a thing? Not really. Um, I'm while I'm risk tolerant. For for investments i'm not uh i i don't enjoy risk enough to speculate in things like that and uh i was living in a place where i couldn't really afford any kind of hardware when it was early enough where mining was actually reasonable to to actually get into it that way so i was like well you know i've done folding at home and that was cute and like left the computer on and watched my power bill cycle around the clock um but i couldn't I couldn't compete with anybody who was actually mining anything by the time that I actually cared enough to figure out what people were talking about. Would you ever consider getting into... So I, I agree with you, and I've never spent money on crypto. I've mined everything I have. So from that perspective, I've never really invested in crypto. I've just played with it. Um, but does the concept of having a, a cryptographical currency appeal to you, the concept of decentralized currency appeal to you, or is it just like, eh, that's one more thing the geeks are playing with that I just don't really see the value in? It's a tough com conversation because while we talk about decentralization, um, anytime that we're taking something out of the physical and putting it into the digital, for me, it, it maximizes a control point, a mm. choke point somewhere. And I think that it's self-defeating. I don't think that this... Uh, I think that it will stay in the fringe if you ever get something that is truly... Hmm, truly free, that's going to stay in the fringe and it's not, not going to receive mass adoption because the, ultimately, you know, a little bit of a, little bit of a tangent, but mm -hmm. countries run on government fiat. And yeah. the only thing that, that places are required to take is government fiat. And things like credit cards and and debit cards, those aren't actually government fiat. Places take them because they can get some value out of it. But at the same time, there is there's nothing that we have agreed upon as a society or as an entity that says that this has value. If I bring this back into the digital world, I think mm -hmm. I just think about the level of control that, that is exerted. Whereas with with money, you can exchange the money and money is as close to like actual government fiat is as close to, um, you know, decentralized as you are going to get. Well, that's fair. That's fair. I, you know, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see 
how people respond to this. It will be interesting to see how cryptocurrency responds. And long term, it'll be interesting to see what choices governments make and how those affect people that are into cryptocurrency are doing it. But I see your point. If if it's digital, there there is a control point. To, I might argue that with cryptocurrency, we're banking on encryption to put that control point in the individual's hands as opposed to the collective hands. Except that you can still lose, like the digital thing can just disappear, mm. right? That That's part of the problem. It, it, we can just, it can literally just disappear. Whereas at least with government fiat specifically, um, you have something physical and tangible and something that is backed by law that, that will exist at some point. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, that, that can always change, but the idea that we can just simply wave a wand and something is erased or nobody takes it anymore because there's nothing you could you could end up mining all of this stuff and then at some point somebody waves a wand and says well you know what we're no longer interested in taking this mm. and yeah the, know, there it goes you're right you're right the confidence has to be there our second email comes in from thomas thomas writes in and says hi guys I just caught up on the latest episode of ANS. I can't wait for the stewards roundtable. Just wait till he hears this episode. My question would be, what can I use as a simple storage solution for my wife? Has to be simple. Has to be easy to use. And it can't break the bank. I'm thinking a portable hard drive, but I'm not sure. Thomas. So, Steve, your wife comes to you and says, Steve, I want to store my data. I want a simple way to do it. What are you setting her up with? Uh, here's the next cloud client. Just don't close this thing ever. Really? Okay, so you would say remove the storage from her, you'll manage it because you're the tech guy, and you just give her a, an easy, approachable way to access the really redundant, very well-maintained storage that you have. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing on the phone. It's just, just make sure this, tell me if this, if your app ever says I can't connect. Mm. That's, that is the level of understanding you need to have, <laughs> you know. Here's what I would say, Jeremy, or excuse me, Thomas. What I would tell you is if you're going to go the hard drive route, understand that you, by definition, the way that you set this up, you have a single point of failure because there's one drive. If you're going to do that, you would want to have your wife back up her drive every night. And then you would want, you know, once a week or once a month or something like that, you take the backup drive and then you back that up for her one other time. And then you've got the data in all three places. But I really like what Steve is saying. That's probably the better approach. A, you've centralized storage, which means when you invest in new hard drives, everybody gets more storage. B, you don't have to have these little one-off things that you're you're maintaining. And as far as easy use, I mean, just map a Samba share for it. It doesn't really matter uh, what OS she's on. And if she's on Linux, then I guess, you, Steve, you would say NFS and System D, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the way that we went here. So her computer and her laptop, they just... Um, downloads and documents are just a system DNFS map. So the computer boots up, and if it's at home, it mounts it. If if mm. not, it's not there. But the understanding is, um, you can get this out of Nextcloud if you needed to, because they're all like it's all circularly circularly mapped to mm. Nextcloud. So our third email comes in from Nomad. Nomad writes in and says, "Thoughts on Signal? You asked for listener opinions on the changes to Signal Messenger." Signal dropping support for SMS has made the app essentially useless for me. I've been on Signal since 2016, and I've never convinced anyone of its benefits. So my wife and son are the only people I communicate with it encrypted. I'm not going to use two apps for one purpose, nor do I expect my wife to. Google Messages on Android, I found implement end-to-end -end encryption if you're using it in RCS over data over Wi-Fi. From what I've read about the protocol, it works very much like Signal. 
Each device has a set of keys, and each message has its own additional key. Using this, I can still be secure with the family while not needing to keep another app for friends who don't use Signal. As for stories, I have no interest in them and consider the entire feature to be a waste of developer time and departure for the core reason for Signal. It seems that an attempt of drawing users, but really they're starting that race two laps down. TikTok, Instagram already own the space stories, trying to move into it, WhatsApp, and those are a similar own the space for messaging apps that do not support SMS. Signal will hemorrhage users due to them dropping SMS support, and Stories is definitely not going to bring them back. I, yep. I was Exactly. I agree with everything that guy just said. There is a, there is a level of, you know, even when Signal supported SMS, there was a moment when the vast majority of people still, if you were looking for a messaging platform, it was either WhatsApp or Telegram. And really, WhatsApp was the more uh, popular one, certainly more popular in the third world countries, the Indias, the Africas of the world. Telegram has has a real user base and has pulled a lot of those people over. Signal was just starting to scratch and not even really seriously, but just starting to scratch because the real hardened security people that were like, oh, I want opens. OK, fine. You got Signal. And then they killed the two or three things that people liked. And as this guy so eloquently points out, nobody, and I mean nobody, started using signals so that they could imitate uh, WhatsApp and, 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 and these stories thing. That's just it, it, Messenger and all these things. That, that isn't why people used Signal. So it does. It seems like they're, it seems like a, like a, like they're taking a step back. But again, your, your feedback, your thoughts are welcome. Uh, live at AskNoahShow.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our fourth email. Steve, I'm going to let you take this one. Yeah. So um, we had an email from Hank, and I didn't even bother trying to summarize Hank's email. He he wrote us a novel. He he commented on everything from, like, hard drives and crypto and, you know, and and it was a very well laid out. It, it had subheadings. Like, this this email was was very well done. And I just wanted to say, Hank, I read it. Um, I couldn't figure out any way to condense it to put parts of it on the air because it was just it's a lot. Too yeah, it was just too much for the detail for for putting on the air. So I just wanted to, to acknowledge the fact that Hank, we got it, we read it, uh, we had a good chuckle over how long it was, and we were thankful for the feedback. But we can't we can't ingest something quite that large. Very, very appreciated. If you wanted to read back with like, here are the four or five like highlights or, or what I would do, we would absolutely put that on the air and feedback like that is certainly appreciated. So you're, you're welcome to send it in and um, huge thanks to you, Steve, for, for, for chugging through a lot of that stuff. Our fifth email comes in from Chris. Chris writes in and says, I have a refurbished desktop computer and I'm purchasing an Asus NVIDIA GeForce GT730 video card, which has four HDMI outputs. Two of these will be used for monitors and the third connected to my TV. My question is, is there a way to direct a DVD player internal to only output to the third HDMI port, thereby only going to the TV and not the two screens? My goal is to have two monitors and the TV to be used exclusively for movies. This would also avoid the possibility of something accidentally getting drug over to the third monitor since I would only have it on for movies. Current OS is Modica, but probably switching to Ubuntu. Thanks for the advice in advance, Chris. Okay, first question, Steve. What the heck is Modica? I haven't a clue. You know okay. what? I didn't. Uh, 
I didn't dig into that. Okay. I so, assume it's a boutique distro. Yeah, it must be. I haven't heard of it. But, okay, so then uh, Linux Modica, a beautiful English, fast, clean, complete Linux. Fantastic. Okay, so here is, so, so he, here's what you're up against. At the end of the day, no matter, no matter what you intend to do with the monitors, they are going to show up as a display inside of your, inside of your operating system. So I don't know that you're going to prevent dragging screen, you know, dragging something onto the screen. If the screen is plugged in and it's on and it's active and the operating system sees it, you could put it in some weird location, like up into the right or up into the left. So it'd be difficult to drag there. I don't know that you can prevent that. You absolutely can prevent it, but it's okay. not a standard setup. So we, we've all, <laughs> let me take you back into history. Okay. Uh, we're all used to the idea that one monitor is now being stretched in conceptually we've if i've got three monitors on my desk right now mm-hmm. and the x server or wayland is stretching that to be one giant desktop across all of yes. them that's yep. what's happening but back in the day you actually had to tell it which which desktops and where to put things and stuff like that and so that meant you could have individual desktops and i actually did this individual desktops per monitor which means they they the x server was handling like it was treating everything as distinctive, and you could do this right in the NVIDIA panel. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if the if the options still exist. I assume that it does. But essentially, when when you treated them as individual X servers, your mouse and keyboard input would transfer, but that was it. Like, you couldn't drag across because they were different X servers, ah. and so you couldn't drag between X servers. And so there was ap- there's absolutely a way to do this, whether it's as easy... like. Whether the options are hidden nowadays is a different story. Uh-huh. But back in the day, it was right in the NVIDIA panel where you could go in there and set it up and it would tell you, like, this is an, an individual X server per screen. I'll tell you what I would do. I would probably, I don't know that I would worry about disabling being able to drag from one to the other. I mean, it's great that that's possible, but I might just put the, the third display, the TV, at the very top next to my two displays. So I'm dragging up to get there, which isn't something I would naturally do, but it would be kind of nice. Like, hey, check out this web page. Hold on. I'll put it up on the TV. Oop, there you go. I would personally, I would like that. Then I think what I would do is I would use something like, you know, Katie window rules or something to say, hey, when, you know, uh, MPV or VLC or whatever opens, you always open on that display. And there, and then you just set it so that when you put a DVD in the drive, then it automatically opens with whatever the application you decided to have show up on that display. And I think that gets them 95% of the way there. A couple of things that stand out to me. So one, who uses DVD players anymore? Rip that stuff to MKV and then you'll just have the file and then you can, and then you can play it, right? Yeah. I mean, oh man, I don't remember the last time I actually played from an optical drive. Right. Yeah, I, so so anyway, I think that's what I would do if you wanted to if you wanted more information, I guess you would research X and then but of course my follow-up question there is is any of that going to work when we switch over to Wayland? I have no idea. I you know, you'll you'll pry X out of my hands. I know it's got security holes and blah blah <laughs> blah. But but uh so I, I have Wayland on on Intel laptops, but as far okay. as that, uh, anything else, I'm still running NVIDIA, and yes, it's got tentative support for Wayland, and yes, it kind of works, um, and yes, there are people out there that, that will swear it works, but but I have had enough uh, bumps and bruises that like this falls under the category of I need to turn on my thing and have it work every time, and X X 
okay, maybe not every time for X, but it is so it is reliable enough that I don't have to go and tinker with it. So. All right. <laughs> Very good. So, Chris, if that doesn't answer your question, write back in live at asknoahshow.com and we will address it further. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. Microsoft has announced that its secure supply chain consumption framework, S2C2F, has been adopted by the Linux Foundation's open source security foundation. Linux 6.2 will no longer treat Intel Arc graphics as experimental. IBM has announced that it has developed and contributed code to the open-source PyTorch machine learning project to enable the technology to work more efficiently with commodity Ethernet-based networking. Red Hat Enterprise Linux 9.1 has been released, and alongside it, Alma Linux 9.1. Rocky Linux has released version 8.7 and is preparing its 9.1 release. The Fedora project has announced the availability of Fedora Linux 37. The Cinnamon Desktop team has announced version 5.6. Canonical has released new security updates for all supported LTS releases. VMware Workstation version 17 has come out, and it adds new Linux guest OS additions. Automotive-grade Linux, an open-source platform for all connected automobile technologies, has unveiled the latest code release of its AGL platform. UCB 14, commonly known as Nifty Needlefish. Godot, the open-source game engine, is gearing up for their 4.0 release, by putting out 4.0 Beta 5. Mozilla 107 has been released, Matrix 1.5 has been released, and the KDE team has announced KDE Frameworks 5.100. In security news, the company Oxi has disclosed that it has discovered a critical vulnerability in the open source tool called Backstage that is used to build developer portals. Trend Micro has announced a malicious hack that steals your Apple keychain data has been added to an open source tool that was created to assist Mac users with signing apps for the iPhone and iPad. Resign Tool is the original app. Kraken SDR is a software-defined, coherently operated 5RX channel radio-based SDR. Unfortunately, the team behind Kraken SDR has stumbled into an arms trafficking legal roadblock for their Kraken SDR-based passive radar. So far, there's no indication that there's been any legal action from the U.S. government, but the team is working quickly to resolve the situation. Storage, data, every business has it, but how they store their data, how you access the data, there is a wide range of expertise on this topic, and there is no short of a correct answer. There's a lot of different ways you can implement it. None of them are wrong. All of them are right in different ways. And so we've assembled the storage, t storage roundtable to really hash this out. So joining me, uh, I welcome in onto the floor Kenny Schmidt from Speed Technologies. Thanks for having me. Peter Denart, uh, Dennert from Speed Technologies. Great. We've got Steve Ovens from Ask Noah and Red Hat. He's there, trust me. And we've got Patrick from New Springs Church. Welcome in, sir. Hi, guys. Okay, so I, I want to start here. Uh, I want to start with the purpose for building storage. So I just kind of want to go around the room. Here is my question. If you are to build storage and you can pick which one is more applicable or which one you have more experience for, I don't care which path you take. And you're welcome to switch throughout the episode. Uh, just make clear when you're doing so. Where would you build storage for? Would you build it for your home or would you build it for a worker client? What is more interesting to you and where do you do? So I'll, I'll give you an example. 
I'll kind of start. I prefer to build storage for clients. I would prefer to go take go go buy a a large server, and I would like to build it out there. And my rationale for that is. If I'm going to build something at home, in the same way somebody who serves in the military likes to buy some of the same stuff that they had in the military because they got training on it and they're very comfortable with the equipment they get home and they want to go make pie the way that they learn to make it work at home, I do the same thing with work technology. If I have a piece of technology that I'm using at work and I'm using it day in, day out, and I know where all the buttons are and I know how to do all the things, why in the world would I want to learn, learn some consumer-grade piece of junk for my house? I'd rather just use the enterprise thing. But if I'm going to try it out, I'll try it out on somebody else's budget. I want to see how the Ferrari drives, you know, and then I'll go find the used one that I can afford for my house. But, like, I'm going to start with, with the Ferrari, and, and I'll work my way back down. So I, I want to start, I guess I'll start with you, Kenny. It's interesting because what you're going to see come out of this is a wide range of experience and a wide range of doing everything. So what would you build storage for? And if I get, handed you a credit card, what would you come home with? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, it's uh, I, I get a little bit of experience in both because uh, I do uh, get to work with storage servers a lot in my work uh, as well as personal. The thing that I do find the most interesting personally, though, is being able to set it up for home use. Um, I, re- I have lots of uh, media that I like to consume uh, and being able to own that media and put it on my own equipment in my own environment where I have total control uh, is really the highlight for me. Um, so uh, I've gone kind of the used route of getting some used equipment and just kind of... Uh, trying to keep it value-based where um, I can keep prices competitive with what you would see out of a streaming service or something like that, um, but still take advantage of being able to own my own media. Okay. So for you, it's about storing your data and having access to it. Steve, same question. I hand you a credit card, unlimited budget. You can pick out whatever hardware you want. How would you build a server and would you focus it more towards enterprise type thing or would you be more home focused? That would be, I'd be enterprise at home uh, because that's what I do already. So I'm interested in doing things as close to the right way as possible. And I find a lot of the, the home stuff to be cobbled together it kind of makes me cringe just just because of the nature of my job like i get it i really do but when i see these things day in and day out and i live the problems that that splash down because of whatever edge case uh, i'm much more comfortable trying to you know make a zfs pool that's you know five drives wide and got the l2 arc going on and i've got cash and you know all of the rest of that kind of redundancy that uh, yeah, it costs a bit, but that's the way that I'd rather roll it. Okay. Uh, Patrick, same question. I give you an unlimited credit card and you can build a, st- a storage server any way which you want to do it. Would you focus more on the home side? Would you focus more on the enterprise side? And what would you buy? What would you come home with? Oh, why would you have to choose? I'd say do <laughs> both. Okay. You know, I love the fact that I get to build 45 drive servers into storage servers or going down and picking up a $200 Optiplex and turning that into a storage server for a friend of mine. So I don't think you really have to choose. I say you just play in both camps. Okay. Uh, Peter, I'll ask you same question. I give you a credit card. You could you could buy anything you want. What would you come home with? Uh, so I mean, I've done a lot of storage servers, both work and personal. At my apartment, the one slight difference, I, I do like kind of like uh, Steve said, doing things the right way. Yes. The one slight difference I've taken on my apartment is building custom computers such that they're quieter than your normal 2U server. Okay. Um, because when you're in an apartment, noise is a big thing. When when you go to build it out, and this is going to kind of take us to our next question, how much data are you using? And so you have the server 
what are you putting on it? What file system or how are you setting that up? Okay, so I have two primary storage servers. Okay. Um, which each have two uh, ZFS pools on them. One of them is set up for uh, not as much of redundancy, but bigger storage capacity. And it's designed for uh, like TV shows, media, that kind of stuff. Stuff that if I lost it, it wouldn't be that big a deal, but okay. is a little bit important. And then I have those are those pools exist on both storage servers and uh, they're not replicated between each other. Okay. So it's just, it's primary purpose is big capacity. I see. And then I have two other storage pools that are, uh, they're uh, mirrored pairs. And so there's a higher redundancy um, and those will be replicated between the two servers. And that's for more important data like documents, uh, personal photos, videos. And you're using Ubuntu as the base and ZFS on top of it. So it's just everything is from the CLI. You're doing everything by hand. Yeah. Okay. So Patrick, I want to ask you the same question. How have you set things up and what are you using and what is your data? What is your data size that you're working with? Well, I've just calculated it up and uh, spinning in servers, I've actually got 855 terabytes of data. And uh, then I've also got two more copies of 275 terabytes that are in drives in, in different locations. And that's part of that 3-2-1 backup strategy, our, our archive server. We got one that's spinning so people could actually get to the uh, content we've created in the past. But then we also uh, have these Pelican cases with hard drives in them where I've got two other copies that are geographically diverse from from the server location so that if we ever had a bad day, I'm in uh, Wichita, Kansas. We're known to have tornadoes. You want to have some space between where all your data lives. <laughs> Fair enough. So, Steve, I could see this going any direction, depending on if you decide to quote your home or some of the places that you work with. But what kind of data size are you looking at and how would you set it up? Let's stick with home just because uh, okay. we've got plenty of people here that have lots of work experience stuff, too. And I, I don't permanently live in the storage realm at work, so I just kind of float in and out of it. At home, I have somewhere in the vicinity of 50 terabytes worth of disks. Okay. Um, they are split. So I have three I have three Z pools, and then I also have, I mirror them, well, mirror them. I sync them to some B3FS uh, disks to give myself a little bit of, I, I don't distrust ZFS. That's Let's put that out on the table. But uh, I have external disks and I've decided to do that with, with B3FS. And so I plug in, they're air-gapped, meaning that they only get plugged in and turned on to the server when I do backups and then I unplug them. And that's part of the part of the process there, even though it's manual, the idea is if you've got, even though I've got surge protectors all throughout my house and all that sort of stuff, if you if you get some sort of freak shock through the USB bus, you've just burned out your external drives. Right. So they they turn off and sit off. So yeah, I have uh, I have a giant pool of I don't know ten or twelve terabytes of of small SSDs that that host those sit on a giant uh, TrueNAS, and so they they serve my VM storage over multiple 10 gig NICs. And then I have other stuff like I've got my important storage, which is on a a striped mirror with with a logs drive. And then I've got VM storage in a different spot that's got mirrored SSDs with uh, 
with an L2 arc. And so I tend to err on the side of caution. If I have to, I buy bigger discs and say, you know, I'm just going to burn the extra space. And I always have, I always have at least two cold storage things that are ready to be slotted in uh, at the first sign of trouble. So going back to Patrick's three, two, one idea. So this is a, a common idea in storage. The idea is that you have it in three different places, two different storage units. Is that the reason for having both ZFS and Butter or B3FS? Is you have it on two different file systems? Yep. So it's two different file systems on disconnected disks, and I also. Uh, I also run Spider Oak, and so the really important stuff gets mirrored up to Sp- Spider Oak. So I have, I have like an ingestion pipeline. So it comes in um, the the computers themselves. So the desktops themselves have they run Nextcloud, and they the computers themselves all have some sort of like local backup, and then Nextcloud backs up to like. Nextcloud syncs to its server and on its server is where it gets picked up on the ZFS pool and that gets shunted out to both. Uh, there's I use Ice Drive and I've got Spider Oak and then I've got my external disks. And so there it is. It's it's not three, two, one for me. It's four, three, two, one. Wow. Okay, so you t- you uh, want to take it an extra step. Let me ask you this, Steve. When you go to set up your ZFS server, what is the base operating system, and how are, how did you set ZFS up? I ran it on top of CentOS for years and years and years. And then, I don't know, at one point, you can't really upgrade between versions of CentOS. And so since when I was rolling, I had to roll forward. Um, I had had enough headaches with... with um, Doing, having to do mod probes because the ZFS module didn't build properly or didn't load at the time of boot. Uh, so I just ended up moving over to Ubuntu for the ZFS, other than obviously the TrueNAS. Okay, so like Peter, you have an Ubuntu base and you have ZFS right on top of it, just on a plain box, no web UI, nothing. Correct. Okay, so I, I want to go back to Kenny. I want to get your thoughts, Kenny. Why do you choose TrueNAS? over just like a stock Ubuntu install with ZFS on top of it? Uh, at its core, it's it's truly a decision of just simplicity. Um, it's what I'm familiar with. And ultimately, at the end of the day, for my home network, it's a very practical tool for me, right? Uh, I talk about it being my movie server. So at the end of the day, when I get done working on servers all day, I want to be able to go home and I want to be able to watch movies and not mm. have to worry about uh, tinkering around too much. I want to kind of set it, uh, have it be reliable and solid and easy to manage. Um, so I've gone the uh, TrueNAS route, uh, and there's just basically a web management uh, that you can go in and set all your pools up. Um, so I just have a, a ZFS pool on TrueNAS uh, that hosts all my media. Okay, so I want to open this up to both Peter and Steve. What would your reasons be, if any, for not using TrueNAS? Why not just set up TrueNAS? You'd have an ISO you could download and it would show up. You'd get the web UI. You'd have a ZFS. Either one of you or both of you, why do you choose to have just a stock Ubuntu base and then ZFS on top? I went this way because every time I try to use some sort of UI, I always find it lacking somewhere where I have some edge case or something that I have to drop to the CLI anyways. Part of it also was I'm not going to, I'm just not going to run uh, a BSD base while, while I was learning. And so we're, we're talking about going back to OpenZFS on Linux years and years ago when mm. I started. And so I carried forward the idea of working on the command line, but honestly, I don't need the overhead of an extra UI or any extra services. We talked about having things just work. You can't get much more than just works than having the machine turn on. 
Like that's, that's, it turns on and it launches NFS and that's it. That's all that it needs to do. It doesn't have to worry about any UI. I don't have to worry about uh, some weird naming convention thing that the UI is sanitizing for or not. And at the end of the day, I just, I don't know. I live in remote connections my entire life. And so why mm-hmm. would this, why would I have a, a UI for this when everything else in my entire professional career is always just right on the command line? Okay. Peter, your thoughts. Uh, so, I mean, when I was looking at, because I looked at, at FreeNAS, which what TrueNAS used to be, um, and Open Media Vault, and because uh, they could, Open Media Vault could do ZFS through uh-huh. like a plugin, which I always kind of felt maybe Feels pressure. weird. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I was kind of, but the thing I liked about Open Media Vault was that it was based on Debian which was something I was very familiar with, where FreeNAS and TrueNAS, based on BSD, I'm not as familiar with. Okay. And they don't necessarily want you dropping to the command line. TrueNAS uh, doesn't. Yeah, they yeah. don't want you tinkering under the hood. And then in 2019, I went to uh, Linux Fest Northwest and heard a talk by Jim Salter on ZFS. Uh-huh. And in that talk, he was talking about the development of ZFS and how Ubuntu was becoming the primary de facto standard platform for development. And at that point I was like, okay, if that's, if that's where, if that's where all the, a lot of the development is happening. Right. Then I can be confident in that it's going to just work. And at that point I was like, I'm, I'm just going to Ubuntu, uh, ZFS. And then as I got into it, like with tools like Syncoid and Sanoid and stuff, and just the functionality that's built into the ZFS uh-huh. utilities, like it's super easy to get it up and running and manage it. Um, like you can even tell it to uh, basically on a pool, expose all these data sets by Samba or NFS and you just turn it on with a switch and then they're all shared. And all you have to do is you have to install whatever Samba and set up one u- a user. Uh-huh. But other than that, it's all done. Like there's no messing around with the configs or anything. It's just, works you know it's interesting you had you had mentioned that that's the way you had done it and i just kind of parked that in my head as a thought didn't really think much about it and like kenny i i kind of subscribed to i like the idea of being able to download an iso stick it in a box and a file server comes out the other end with you know zfs and i just click a button and it works and as i went to upgrade my TrueNAS server i had to take it offline and my kids and my wife start freaking out well how do we watch movies how do we watch tv how do we store recipes how do we do grocery shopping you told us this file server okay all right got it. I get it. I understand. I will get a backup up. So I think to myself, I need to get some file server up just for some casual stuff. I told them each pick a few hours of content that you want and I'll make it available. And I got like three steps into trying to get TrueNAS downloaded and booted and all the things. And eventually I was like, you know what? This just isn't working for me. And then they don't really support virtualizing in any way. And I wanted to just run it on a, on a virtual host so I could set this temporary server up for what I thought was going to be a couple of days. They would get their media and we'd be fine. So I downloaded Ubuntu ISO and I booted and I'm telling you within eight minutes I had Samba installed, had Samba configured, had ZFS installed, had the pool created, had data on the pool, had this. I mean, it was, it was slicker than snot. It was like six, seven commands and it was up and running. And I'm like, I'm starting to get it. It's starting to click to me. And then when you add the fact that that's where open ZFS is being developed, I think it makes sense for us as professionals to at least be aware of those paths because it's, that's likely to be where the skate puck is going to be now i want to throw it all to 
just throw it out the window with Patrick because he he breaks the mold with this stuff. So Patrick, I want you to talk a little bit about how you built your very large server because you're using ZFS, but you're not doing it with Debian on ZFS or you're doing or doing it with TrueNAS. If you don't mind, can you start with the Alma Linux tale because I think it speaks exactly to what Steve was talking about earlier. Yeah, well, I was concerned with if I was going to build this, make sure that I I built it with multiple file systems, you know, one running off of Alma and and then my backup pools running off of TrueNAS so that if I had a bad day, I wouldn't have the same bad day everywhere, you know, keep my backup pools running separate. So, yeah, we've got Alma Linux running on the main file server and then I've got TrueNAS for all of my backup servers. And uh, that, that's been nice to have. But then Alma Linux has some weird things about it, too. The fact that it's not uh, got ZFS baked into the kernel, that it's loaded as a DKMS module. One night I decided, hey, let me go ahead and upgrade this tonight so that tomorrow it'll all be ready to go. So 11 o'clock at night, I hit up, update and... ZFS up uh, doesn't get updated when the kernel gets updated. And, you know, I spend the whole night trying to figure out learning about DKMS modules and, and, and what I need to do. And, uh, you know, needless to say, no sleep that night. And about uh, 10 o'clock the next morning, we had everything up and running. But, uh, yeah, that was less than comfortable. But then you were also glad that you had TrueNAS boxes setting to back everything up, so if you had to, you could point everybody at the backups and and you know get your ship righted. Steve, I want to give you a moment to respond. Is that what is that kind of the same thing that drove you off of at the time? I guess for you, it was CentOS. Ultimately, like I said, it, it broke down to every once in a while I would get a boot where it just wouldn't load the it it wouldn't it didn't unsuccessfully build. But it just wouldn't load it. And so I actually had to go in and run a mod probe on the ZFS stuff and then I could mount it. And so mm. that was just that was just tiresome. Like I don't reboot my servers a lot. They sit on UPSs or whatever. But mm-hmm. um when I was traveling, that was a big deal. Like if if they happened to reboot while I was traveling, that meant that um Plex didn't work, Nextcloud wasn't functioning. Uh these things like particularly Nextcloud is critical for us because mm. we run our our contacts and our calendars off of that. And, you know, I rely on that for, for backups. Well, let's say copies of, of data off of my laptop. And so ultimately it's like, well, I just don't need the hassle of having to hop into this box just because it couldn't figure out how to load the module. So, but you never had any problems getting the DKMS mile, uh, DKMS module to build for you. It was just, if it rebooted, sometimes it wouldn't load the module. Yep. Pretty much. I mean, there might've been the odd, uh, kernel release where that happened, where it wouldn't build, but that wasn't a big deal. Just remove the the new kernel. It's because it's a server. Like if it was running on the old kernel, I don't really need whatever new shininess is in the new kernel. Especially since we're talking about RHEL, where uh, when it bumps the kernel, it's not going to be groundbreaking in right. the in the current major release cycle. Yeah. So, but it's 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 of note to me that even working for Red Hat, you make a decision to use something different in your home. And I mean, to a degree, it's a function of using the right tool for the right job. But when you see a lot of enterprise storage set up, do you see it running on RHEL? And if so, do you see it with ZFS or is it typically some other sort of file system that you encounter? 
I've never seen at my clients RHEL and ZFS or ZFS, okay. as I like to say. No, I have never seen that. And that's largely because our clients are not rolling their own, right? They're going to go and buy some appliance somewhere, whether whether that's an Isilon or a, I even don't see TrueNAS, to be honest with you. I see like yeah. NetApp, I see Isilon, I see, I see a bunch of the really big stuff. And so, yeah, they're not, they're not rolling their own. That is part one of the storage roundtable. Stay tuned for part two and maybe even a part three. It's going to be a blast. Now, Steve, I want to talk a little bit about Ohio Linux Fest. This is something you've been working on for a long, long time, and there's been a lot of planning and a lot of work that's gone into some of the things you're doing. Talk about what you're going to be doing at at, uh, Ohio Linux Fest. So this year, myself and a colleague, Jay Ryan, are giving... um, two full day workshops one is about doing container internals and then the other one is kubernetes from your laptop to production and so we are working on on ironing out the labs to to kind of find the happy medium between what is what is too much of a deep dive into container internals and and what to cover because you can cover everything from the linux primitives which is the stuff that i kind of uh, like to talk about all the way down to the container spec and how the various things work and how Podman works under the hood. So we've been we are putting together that, and then on day two, we're going to walk through um, spinning up Kubernetes on your laptop, and with the idea of like this is how you're going to kind of dev on it and what what you can reasonably expect going into production. And so part of the class is going to be. Just a small part of it's going to talk about OpenShift. So the, the purpose of this is like, here's how you do a bunch of these sort of enterprisey things, like add add authentication and and your monitoring and all those sorts of things. And this is the level of work effort that's required if you're doing it on vanilla Kubernetes. And this is how you do it in OpenShift. And the idea here is to show you that Kubernetes distributions have a value, and and it's not it's not a sales pitch for OpenShift specifically. Uh, but Red Hat does pay my way. And so it's more, in my mind, it's more, this is Kubernetes distributions, just like Linux distributions provide individual value for you. Each one of them kind mm. of put a spin on whatever it is that you're tackling. And so that that's kind of the focus of day two. That's going to be awesome. So this happens December 2nd, December 3rd, coming up in this year. So actually really just uh, like a week or so, two weeks away. Um, coming up, not this coming weekend, will be Thanksgiving, but the weekend after that, and you'll be out in Ohio hanging out, shaking hands with folks. And again, like any Linux Fest, I would say that the most valuable thing that you can spend time on is the hallway track. I guess in this case, the second most thing you can spend uh, valuable time on is the hallway track. Most valuable thing, come see Steve's talk, come see the demonstration. But in all seriousness, man, you put a ton of work into automating and building out so that you can do these demonstrations quickly and efficiently, make good use of people's time and convey an absolute boatload of information in the two days that you and your colleague are going to be doing this. Yeah, it is It is a surprising amount of work to develop a walkthrough slash lab that actually works every time. <laughs> mm. It is, you know, I've been working with Kubernetes and OpenShift for seven years, seven years at this point, my goodness. Um, and I still bumped my way through parts of it and I found some frustration. So the idea here is just to show you that it doesn't matter where you are with your Kubernetes journey. I do this day in and day out 
for my job and I still hit things like gotchas. So, yeah. you know, we're we're going to cover some of the I'm going to I'm going to throw you to the wolves for part of it. So I'll walk <laughs> you through. I'll I'll give you a bunch of it and then I'm just going to toss you out there and see if you can figure out what's wrong and they'll we will have like a little spoiler section so that if you get stuck, you know, there's some some way for you to bail out. Um, but yeah, it should be a good time. I'm looking forward to it. Now, people are listening to this and they're thinking, hey, I'm going to come out to Ohio Linux Fest. I'm going to be there in the Hilton Colum- uh, Columbus Downtown Hotel in Columbus, Ohio on December 2nd and 3rd. And I'm going to come listen to Steve's talk. Is there anything that they should come prepared with? Like, is it helpful to have a laptop? Is it helpful to have, you know, some experience or a blank thing or like a sacrificial install because we're going to muck up your... What do people need to know? So in this case, um, we Red Hat is coming and giving our time and so this is part these two-day workshops are part of the way that ohio linux fest actually funds themselves because they Mm. don't charge for for going themselves so this is something that you do have to sign up for there is some fee i don't know what the fee is because that's that's all the on the ohio side of things i see Um, the idea here is it would be ideal if you have a vm on your laptop uh, because you can take that home with you. We gotcha. are also going to use the Red Hat cloud infrastructure if you don't have it or for stuff like OpenShift, which is going to be too much for your laptop to handle. Yeah. So both both eventualities would be good. We can fall back to the cloud. It just means you wouldn't bring it home with you. Again, the dates, December 2nd, December 3rd at the Hilton Columbus Downtown Hotel in Columbus, Ohio. Join us for Ohio, well, join Steve for Ohio Linux Fest. It's going to be an absolutely fantastic time. The music in our ears, it means we're out of time. Hey, don't forget, follow us on Twitter. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. The show at Ask Noah Show. We record the show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can be a part of the show throughout the week. Send your questions, send your thoughts to live at asknoahshow.com. Heard something in the show that piqued your interest? Have a question? Send it in to live at asknoahshow.com. We'll address it on the upcoming show. We'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Again, you can find all of the articles and references we use at podcast.asknoahshow.com. You'll find the show notes there, and we'll see you back next Tuesday at 6 p.m.